Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. God has been on mission from the very beginning. Why would we share about Jesus? Because we're on mission with him. Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill discusses this topic in his sermon titled, Share. Let's listen now. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we confess before you today that you're holy, you're glorious, you're powerful, you're seated on high. Your bigness in many ways is overwhelming to us. And yet, God, we find that you are close to us, that you come to us, you walk with us, you speak to us, you're near us. And that, too, is amazing. So, Lord God, today, call us to yourself Call us to your mission in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, as we think about sharing, we want to ask the question, why should we share our faith? Why should we share our faith? In some ways, as we look at the Bible and we recognize the ease with which sin entered the world in the first place, it has to drain away a bit of our hope in sharing our faith. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created the world and everything in it, including us. And God put us in a garden, man and then woman, in a garden where we had everything we needed, all of our needs were met. God told us we could eat from any of the abundant produce in the garden, just not of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then we discover that the serpent, whom we know to be Satan, entered the garden and began to poke at the command of God with the woman. We find that the woman very quickly became confused by the serpent and ended up doubting the goodness of God, at which point... The serpent jumped on an opportunity and struck at the woman and led her to eat the fruit. She ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then her husband, Adam, ate the fruit. And at once, the Bible says, their eyes were opened. They realized the difference between good and evil. And in that instant, they realized as well their own nakedness. Guilt and shame entered the world along with sin, and they sensed their vulnerability and their danger. And so the Bible says to protect themselves, they, they sewed loincloths out of fig leaves because that seemed to be the thing to do in response. But in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, as we see the ease with which sin entered the world, we have to ask, if sin enters the world that easy, easily, what hope is there in sharing our faith? If sin entered the world that easily in the first place, how does sin spread in the world today? And as we ask that question, though, we want to turn again to Genesis chapter 3, because there we see that immediately upon sin entering the world, God is already on mission. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read that God is already on mission immediately after the fall. Those verses begin, they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden 
in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, we see that God is on mission because there he is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord God is walking in the garden of Eden, as is his habit. He's doing so in the cool of the day, which means toward the beginning of the evening when the cool evening breeze was beginning to blow. But to say that the Lord God is walking in the Garden of Eden is to point out the regularity of this, the normalness of this. God is walking in the garden as was his habit in order to see his creatures, to see the man and the woman, and to have face-to-face fellowship with them. God is coming to them immediately after the fall as is his habit. Why? Because God is on mission toward them. But then God says the most amazing thing. God calls out to them, where are you? Where are you? Now, please recognize what this is not. This is the Lord God we're talking about. This is the Lord God who is omniscient. He knows everything. And so God is not coming to the man and the woman in order to conduct an investigation of what has just happened. God knows what has happened. And God is not seeking the man and the woman as if they are truly hidden from him. They have ducked behind a tree that God made. God's creatures who he made have ducked behind a tree that God has made thinking that they might hide from him. But please understand what's not happening in Genesis 3. God is not coming into the Garden of Eden. Marco! (laughs) He knows where they are. So why does he ask, where are you? Because God who has come to his people is calling out to them and inviting them to come to him because God is on mission calling his people to himself. Now, if God is on mission, how can we not join him in that mission? See, as I ask the question today, why should we share our faith? There are so many lesser answers we could give. Why should we share our faith? Well, because the Bible commands us to, because it's the right thing to do. Why should we share our faith? Because it builds the church and it builds our faith. We could talk about all of those things, but the fundamental reason why we share our faith is because our God is on mission. Our God is on mission, saving his people, building his kingdom, and making his name great and glorified in this world. And we join him on that mission because he's already out there in front of us and inviting us to join him. What we discover is that God is on mission even as he is judging the first sin. God is on mission even as he's judging the first sin. If we continue into verses 10 through 13, God begins to have a conversation with Adam and Eve about what has just happened, and they immediately start to dodge the blame and deflect blame. God asks Adam basically what's happened, and Adam, rather than taking ownership, blames his wife directly and God indirectly God turns his attention next to Eve, and she blames the serpent. Why is everybody deflecting blame in Genesis 3? Because they recognize that with sin comes consequences, and there are going to be consequences for sin. 
But as we arrive in verses 14 and 15, and we discover the consequences being handed out first to the serpent, in the middle of the consequences that God is giving to the serpent, we find a promise to humanity, and we find already a prophecy of what God is going to do in the future. Verses 14 and 15 continue, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now what we find here is that as the consequences are given out, they go first to the serpent. And he's just called the serpent here, not named Satan, but we discover that the serpent is going to crawl on his belly from that point forward. He's going to be right down in the dust, which is the place from which Adam came and the symbol of death. The serpent will crawl around figuratively in the dust from that point forward. And then we find a promise that's being given to the humans, and that is that there is going to be enmity now between the serpent and the woman and her offspring, all of her offspring, which represents all of humanity. There's going to be a constant conflict there, which in some ways you could say, well, that's just explaining why people don't like snakes, but there's something far deeper going on here because there is a prophecy contained in here. There is a prophecy that the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of the descendant of the woman. And this is a foreshadowing already of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we find the Son of Man, Son of God, descendant of Eve, who will be harmed. His heel will be bruised. Satan will find him suffering. He will go to a cross. He will die to pay the price for our sin. He will hurt in the process. But God is already saying that, the, that the, the blow that Jesus inflicts on Satan will be defining. He will bruise the head of the serpent, meaning that in dying and paying the price for our sin and rising victorious over sin and death and evil, the defining blow has already been given to Satan. And so we see God promising his people about a plan. He's prophesying a plan whereby he will save his people. God is already on mission, even in the middle of the consequences to the serpent. But as we move forward, we're going to see that God is also promising the continuity of life, even in the midst of death entering the world. In verses 16 through 20, we continue. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. 
And so now we see here that God is acknowledging the fact that death has entered the world, and death is certainly coming, just as God had foretold when he told them not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death is already coming into the world. And death has consequences to their bodies and to their lives together even then. He, he gives consequences. But in the middle of those consequences, we find hope in the continuity of life. There are consequences given to the woman. She will have pain in childbearing from that point forward. That's what life in a broken world looks like. But God is promising, along with the fact that there will be pain in childbirth, that children will be born. Consequences have entered the world. Death has entered the world. But life has come as well. Eve will have children. The human race will continue. To Adam, he says, the ground that has normally just given you produce, from this point forward, you have, will have to work to get that produce. And as you work, the ground will actually resist you. The ground is cursed. It, it's been infected by sin, and it will no longer produce as it did. You're going to toil and labor all the days of your life. But the ground will give food, and you and your descendants will have food to eat. Life is going to continue, even though it's difficult. And Adam recognizes what God has said, and so he names his wife finally. To this point, she was just the woman, and now he names her Eve. And we find that the name Eve means to him that she is the mother of all living. In the middle of death entering the world, God is assuring the continuity of life. God is on mission to save his people. And as we continue into verse 21, we find God is even foreshadowing directly the ministry and the life of Jesus as he's on mission. In verse 21, we read, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God was actually preparing to send them out of the Garden of Eden, and he was sending them to sin-saturated soil that would be rife with the consequences of sin. And he knew that nakedness was not the way to send them out there, nor was a loincloth stitched from leaves. They would need a garment to hide their, their shame and their nakedness and to protect them from the elements. And so God, even though these two have just disobeyed him and rejected him, gives them clothing, something to protect them and to provide for them, demonstrating his great love for his people. But you notice that he sews for them garments out of animal skin. He makes for them essentially leather clothing to protect them. But what we know is that Clothing that's made out of animal skin means that an animal has had to die in order for those clothes, those garments, to be made. For Adam and Eve to live, an animal had to die. Because in killing this animal to provide garments for Adam and Eve, God is foreshadowing the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Because you see, the essence of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was that we human beings have sinned against God. We've created a debt with God, an offense against God. And the only way to pay for that debt is for blood to be shed, for life to be given. And so in the Old Testament, animal lives are given. Animal blood is shed. Animals are killed to pay the price for our sin and offered to God in our place. 
But what we know about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is that it was never enough. Not enough animals could be killed to wipe away all of our guilt and debt with God, to get sin out of the picture. And so even the sacrificial system itself was constantly pointing us to something more. This sacrificial system's failure is pointing us to a need we had for a better sacrifice, a need we have for Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, joined together in one person, comes to earth, takes on the full weight of human sin, and dies to pay the price for our sin in our place. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, is already pointing us forward to Jesus because God is already on mission to save his people. And then in verses 22 through 24, we find God closing the way to the Garden of Eden so that the way to eternal life would be open to us. Verses 22 through 24 continue. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever and li- eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So now looking at us, God realizes that we have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so in that sense become like God, knowing the difference here. But along with knowing the difference has come the consequence of death into the world. Death has already begun to change the character for Adam and Eve, and death is eating away already at their bodies, and the damage will mount, and they will die at some point. But God recognizes that if they, in their sinful condition, reach out to the tree of life and eat the fruit of it, they'll live forever. But they will live forever with sin in their heart and the damage that sin has done racking their bodies. They would live forever in eternal torment if they eat from the tree of life at this point. And so God knows they have to be pushed out of the Garden of Eden to keep them from taking this disastrous step. So he pushes them out of the Garden of Eden, not just as consequence for their actions, but as protection from what might happen to them. Because God closes the way to the Garden of Eden, they can't live eternally tormented on this earth. Instead, in dying, they open the way that we might be resurrected and live eternally with Jesus Christ. You see, God is right there, even in giving out consequences, he is saving his people because God is on mission. That's just who God is. God is on mission. If we look to the pages of the Bible and we try to figure out when did God begin this mission, we keep finding ourselves pushed backwards. For us, we read the end of the gospel according to Matthew, and a commission from Jesus to go, and as we go, make disciples of all nations. We ask ourselves, is this then the beginning of God's mission? And the answer is no. God was well on his mission by that point. 
We look back to the incarnation of Jesus, to Jesus' birth, and we see God the Son setting aside the privileges of heaven to come to earth and take on human flesh. Jesus is God coming to us, God with us. And we ask, is that then the beginning of God's mission? And the answer is no, God is already on mission. We turn back in the Old Testament to the pages of the prophets, and we read the prophets speaking of Messiah, of Jesus who is to come, and we ask, is that the beginning of God's mission? Is that when he came up with his plan? But no, we know that God was already on mission. We go back to the life of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham, and we recognize that God called Abraham, and God said to Abraham, I will bless you and through you I will bless all nations. Is that the beginning of God's mission? As we look at Genesis chapter 3 today, we recognize, no, God was already on mission. If we back up all the way to creation, we recognize that in creation, we are seeing our God who is on mission. Because you see, God created not because he needed us. This has got to be a tough thought for us as human beings but let this one settle into your soul. God did not make you because he needs you. If God did not make you because he needs you, why did God make us? God made us because he loves us and he wants to relate to us. God created the world and us, not because he needed anything, but because he wanted to create a people to love. He was creating already a people to save, a kingdom to build, and glory for his name. God is on mission. There is no point in the Bible where God is not on mission. God is on mission. Which means that as we think about mission, it's always been his mission. When God commands us to make disciples, we recognize that God is already out there making disciples, and he's simply calling us to join him. When God commands us to share our faith, to reach the lost people, we realize that God is already out there in advance of us reaching lost people, and he's inviting us to join him. God is already on mission saving his people, building his kingdom, and glorifying his name, and he invites us to get into that mission with him and join him. And that's what Genesis 3 is telling us today, but that leads us to an important principle, and that is that God who is on mission demands that we own his mission. God who is on mission demands that we own his mission. Now, what does it mean for us to own God's mission? It means that in owning God's mission, we make his mission our own. It means that we dedicate ourselves to the same end that God is at work in this world for. That mission becomes our mission. We give our best thought, our best time, our best energy, our best resources, our best planning to that mission because God's mission has now become our mission. God's burning priority in this world becomes our burning priority in this world and in life. It becomes our first thought in the morning and our last thought as we put our heads on the pillow in the evening. We own God's mission. There are so many opportunities for us to act on owning God's mission right here together as the people of God at Valley. Here, Through Valley's world outreach, we have the opportunity to join God on mission to the least reached peoples around the world. Our world outreach ministry 
works through others to reach people who have not heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And we define those as least-reached peoples. That means peoples who live in places where there is no significant witness to Jesus Christ. There are very few churches and very few followers of Jesus. Strategically for us, that means that we send people to proclaim the gospel in places where the gospel is not being proclaimed otherwise. And very tactically for us, that means that we are usually in places where Islam is the dominant faith right now, and we are consequently not welcome. But through our world outreach ministry here at Valley, we are invited to pray and give and go. We are invited to pray for our partners who are in those least reached people groups around the world. We are invited to give to support the work that they are doing to proclaim the gospel in the least reached places on earth. And we are invited to go, to go for short times to join them or go for a long time ourselves to do the work of proclaiming the gospel to the least reached peoples around the world. Through Valley's World Outreach Ministry, we have the opportunity to join God on mission in the least-reached people groups around the world. Now, through Valley's Local Outreach Ministry, we have the opportunity to complete the Great Commission here in Hartford and Litchfield counties. Hartford and Litchfield counties are our backyard. There's 1.1 million people living right here in our backyard, and 900,000 of them have no relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as we join God on mission, part of what we do is seek to complete the Great Commission right here in our own backyard, meaning that we want to relationally share the gospel with every person living in Hartford and Litchfield counties. And we want to make sure that there is a gospel-preaching Great Commission church within easy reach of every person in these two counties. And through our local outreach ministry, we have the opportunity to engage in personal evangelism, where we share our faith ourselves. In planting evangelism, where we start new churches in places where there are no churches right now. And we work with partners in order to complete the Great Commission across Hartford and Litchfield counties. So through our local outreach ministry, we have the opportunity to join God on mission and complete the Great Commission in our day in our own backyard. And individually, each of us has the opportunity to bless the people where we live and work and play. You see, blessing people is a strategy that we are using for personal relational evangelism to our neighbors, the people where we live, the people where we work, and the people where we play. Bless is a very simple five-part strategy. When you leave today, you'll get a card if you're in person with us that will remind you of what the blessed lifestyle looks like. And BLESS is an acronym that stands for five foundational habits for each one of us. B reminds us to begin with prayer. We pray for, in a systematic way, lost people where we live and work and play. The letter E stands for eat together. We show people hospitality and invite them into our lives. I skipped L. (laughs) I used to be able to spell. L stands for listen. Listen with care because we want to hear their life story and their concerns. B-L-E for most people spelling bless. The letter S stands for serve with love. We serve them in Jesus' name as Jesus would. 
And the second S stands for share your story. Share the story of what God has done in your life and who God is to you and see what it is that God does through living this blessed lifestyle. We want to bless the people where we live and work and play. Can each one of us choose to bless at least one individual where we live and work and play? God is on mission, and he demands that we, his people, own his mission. Now, since we own his mission, let's share our faith. Since we own his mission, let's share our faith, but what does that look like? Together, it looks like let's build Valley Community Baptist Church in our day. I don't know how many of you know this, but 46 years ago, four people came together to start Valley Community Baptist Church. There are different counts of that number because those four people very quickly gathered other people around them, but at some point, it came down to four people, two couples, getting together and making a decision to start this church. Now, I'm a church planter, and I have directed church planting across a large region, and I know how this normally looks like. What I'm here to tell you is no pastor came to town to gather a group of core team members to start a church here in the Farmington Valley. And no network or denomination said Avon would be a critical place to start a church. We should send somebody and gather a team there. No, four people came together and in obedience to God's mission, dedicated themselves to the end of starting a gospel-preaching Great Commission church at the heart of the Farmington Valley, and they did it. And here, 46 years later, we have a great big gospel-preaching Great Commission church at the heart of the Farmington Valley. And the question becomes, if they did that in their day, can we not in our day to join God on mission build this great church that we have in order that the gospel might be preached and the Great Commission might be completed in our day? Can we do that together? Can that be our vision? Let's build Valley together in our day. Let's build Valley in our day. But secondly, let's invite people to join us. Let's invite lost people to join us. Now, many of us have remarked about the fact that the world feels like a very dark place right now in a lot of ways. And many of us would say that the world that is dark feels only like it's getting darker. And you may be in that situation today. That may be where you think you are, where you feel. And I would say this to you, if the world out there feels dark to you who have the light of Christ in your heart, imagine what the darkness feels to a person who does not have Jesus in their heart. A person living in the dark with nothing but darkness inside. How great would the darkness be for them? And as we think to ourselves, it feels so dark outside sometimes. We remember that we are the people of the light. We are the people with the hope of Jesus Christ. And so rather than complaining about the darkness out there, does it not make sense to invite those who are in the dark into the light with us? Does it not? This is not a rhetorical question. Because when those who are in the dark come and join us in the light when they become followers of Jesus Christ themselves, then the light shines all the brighter. 
And John's gospel tells us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Let's invite people to join us in faith in Jesus Christ. Let's build valley in our day. Let's invite lost people to join us and let's engage with our faith. This entire series has been about engaging with our faith. At the beginning of the series, I told you a statement. It's, I get it, it's a little bit long, but I want you to remember where we began this. And that statement is, full valley engagement cultivates disciples who impact the world for Christ. Full valley engagement cultivates disciples who impact the world for Christ. And we know we want to impact the world for Christ. And so we want to be disciples of Jesus who live as disciples. How do we cultivate disciples of Jesus? And it's through full engagement. By engaging with our faith, we cultivate disciples who impact the world for Christ. And I told you at the beginning, there are going to be four ways that we're going to talk about engaging with our faith. Way number one is through worship. We worship God. We come to worship and we worship him, not just by attending, but with everything that we are vibrantly. And then secondly, we connect with other followers of Jesus. We connect with them in groups to which some of you responded, that takes more faith than it builds because connecting is not natural and easy. And then I said, the third thing we do is we serve. We use our God-given gifts to serve, which sounds difficult as well. It requires time and energy and risk. And here I am saying, and fourth, we share our faith in Christ, to which you say, yes, okay, that sounds like work again. And there are some in our midst that I thank God for because knowing that this is what God tells us to do, you do it simply because that's what God told you to do. I praise God for you and I thank God for you. We obey God because that's what's expected of us. But if you're waiting and asking, that sounds so hard, where is the payoff? How does this process of engagement cultivate me? How does it make a difference in my life? Recognize we've just been through one spin of this wheel. And as we come around this wheel and we talk about the work of serving and the work of sharing, and you say, ooh, I might be tired. That's a lot. I'm going to be drained. I'm going to have taken risks. I might be injured in some ways. Then think about what it is like to come back around that wheel again. Think about what it's like to have spent a week serving God and sharing your faith. Yeah, at the end of that week, you'd be tired and looking for refreshment and looking for hope, exactly what you would find in worship. You would come to worship with the hunger of a 16-year-old football player looking for a diet, for a food that would nourish the body and replenish everything that had been lost, and you would eat voraciously. And having dined on the word and the presence of God, you would be eager to spend time with other followers of Jesus who would encourage you in the faith and model what it looks like to follow Jesus. And together, you would be determined to serve the world because that's what followers of Jesus do. And in serving the world, you would find yourself sharing your faith constantly and sharing your faith constantly and seeing people come to know Christ. You couldn't wait to get back to worship to praise the name of the living God and connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this wheel would begin turning in your life, cultivating you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Can you see what could happen? Can you see what could happen? 
So these are the days for us to engage. Can we engage with our faith in these days? Can we catch this vision together that God might cultivate us as disciples who impact the world for Christ? God is on mission. God invites us to join him on mission. How will you be involved? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.